Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this week I want to start off with a Bible verse. Revelation 17, 17. For God has put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Rick, it looks like we're getting close as we watch world leaders and the decisions that they're making. It certainly does, Jimmy. Political leaders around the world making decisions that are setting the stage for the next event on God's main calendar of events in his prophetic end-time scenario. And as we are going through this program today, as you see, as we have our lineup, our regulars, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, back with us this week, we have Colonel Bob McGinnis, Winky Madad, and on our Legacy Series, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, will be going through God's plan through the ages. You're going to see how all of this comes together when we bring it to an end, when we take a look at the book at the end of the program. Rick, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get going with Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman with us. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst, and you can find out more about him by going to his website, KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we've lots to get to today, so we'll make it quick. We'll start off. Last week, we had uh, some early reporting on the Russian mutiny, the Russian coup. Uh, if you could, and I'm going to talk to Bob McGinnis about this later on the program, but if you could give us an update on the aftermath of that and maybe even some stories that I'm hearing that this mutiny or coup confirmed that Putin has a body double. Yeah, well, right. That is a rumor that's been out there for a long time and uh, an appearance that Putin made just recently in Dagestan, where he kind of went into the crowd and kissed babies and took selfies, things that you never see Vladimir Putin do. Uh, and so that really uh, makes you wonder whether there was a body double involved. But remember last week, Rick, I said that I suspected Trigotsin would not take his quarrel with the Russian military to Putin. In other words, he would not be challenging Putin uh, for a very simple reason. If you're going to attack the king, you've got to kill him. Putin is the king. And Prigozhin pretty clearly understood he was not going to be killing Putin. So therefore, he had to stop before his mutiny, his challenge actually challenged Putin himself. And that moment came when Putin basically said he was a traitor and the mutiny was a mutiny and it was a threat to his leadership. And that's when miraculously uh, Lukashenko in uh, Belarus gave everybody an out, allowed them to move the forces, uh, the Wagner forces to Belarus. Now, there are a couple of things that haven't been widely reported here. Uh, one is that Prigozhin, remember, is probably the richest oligarch in Russia today. He derives his riches, first of all, from the payments from Moscow, from the army, from the defense ministry to his forces. Second of all, he has a unique supply contract with the Russian military. So he's basically their supply master and gets a cut on all of that. And the third source of wealth is from some of his foreign contracts, in particular in the Central African Republic, where it's been reported he is able to engage in black market trading of gold and diamonds and essentially stuff all of that into his pockets. So he has money behind him as well as a private army of well over 20,000 people. And by the way, it's been said uh, just, just today that he has launched a new recruiting drive inside Russia. 
Well, I'm sure we'll be talking about the aftermath for quite a few more weeks as we talk about this amazing event that took place. But we'll move on. And Russia, they are isolated from the rest of the world, more and more so as time goes on. And they are increasingly relying on their their allies. The main one is China. How does this event that took place, this mutiny, this coup, how does it affect the relationship with China? Well, publicly, we don't know. The Chinese have said nothing about it, and that's, by the way, to be expected. But uh, it's hard to imagine President Xi just turning a blind eye and saying, uh, nothing there, folks, nothing nothing to see here. This, I think, is a, is a serious wake-up call. It shows him that uh, Putin can be challenged, that there is some discontent with Putin inside the Russian establishment. Remember, Prigozhin is not a fly-by-night character. He is firmly ensconced in the Russian establishment. And that, I think, for the Chinese is worrisome. They see that um, you know Putin is perhaps not going to be there for as long as they thought, and perhaps the Chinese had better make sure their relationship with Russia is a relationship of state to state and not person to person. Well, Ken, I'd like to look at this situation from a different angle. And we talk a lot about China. We talk about Russia and, of course, the U.S. influence in the world or the waning U.S. influence in the world. I'd like to relate that back to the European Union. If you look at the European Union right now, they're going to have to deal with new realities, new dynamics in the world between Russia, between China, between the U.S. Where are they going to fall in this scenario? Well, there was an interesting poll done recently by the European version of the Council on Foreign Relations, where they wanted to sound out people's feelings across a number of EU countries, about eight of them, I believe, they used in their poll. And one of the things I found most extraordinary in this poll is that, first of all, the Europeans are not very favorable towards the Chinese. Uh, Less than 5% see China as an ally, and that's less than half of the 11% who see China as an enemy to the Europeans. For the most part, uh, the Europeans are neutral. Uh, China is much further away to the European consciousness than it is to Americans, for example. Europe is not flooded with Chinese goods the way that the United States is flooded, like Walmart is flooded. Certainly you have Chinese products available, but it's just not the same cultural imperialism or cultural colonization, if you wish. The, the cultures in Europe also are perhaps stronger. Now, I'm speaking from France, uh, which I know the best of all, and France is a bit peculiar precisely because of that strong cultural heritage and a self-awareness among French people that they are French first and foremost. But I think overall what this poll shows is that the Europeans don't want to rock the boat They don't want to get involved if there's a U.S.-China conflict. That's very clear. They will stay neutral. And they want to keep doing business, big business, uh, with China. So when President Macron of France or van der Leyen, the president of the EU, goes to Beijing, what do they do? They bring business delegations with them. It reminds me of the old days when uh, Jacques Chirac would go to Baghdad to see Saddam Hussein and bring uh, you know, all these French business with him as well. Uh, so signing contracts, signing big contracts with China, that's a big deal, but they do not see themselves, the Europeans don't, as really pro-Chinese. 
Well, Ken, as an author and analyst in geopolitics, I believe your expertise is more in demand now than ever, and it becomes harder and harder to navigate these waters. We just talked about Russia and China and the European Union, and of course, the United States. Well, I'd like to talk to you about, and we've talked about it on this program before, President Biden seeming to me, maybe out of his depth a little bit. He made a few off-the-cuff comments, one of them saying that Putin is losing the war in Iraq, not Ukraine, and then another one calling the Chinese President Xi Jinping a dictator. These are things that he said off the cuff. Is this something that we need to be worried about? Uh, I, I think it's a bit distressing, frankly, and it's not that he's out of his depth. It's that he's out of his mind. Uh, it's far more serious than that. We have a president who who has a serious problem, periodic periodically it doesn't seem to happen all the time but it happens at times when he's when he's doing a television interview a live television interview and he will make a comment like that saying that uh, Putin is losing the war in Iraq and then talking about the US constitution in another one and saying well we fought, fought a war over that and slavery in 1960 uh, and he's not even corrected by the TV host because that would be too embarrassing it's a problem uh, i think Biden's uh, cognitive abilities are diminishing before our very eyes and the White House refuses to address it and refuses to release any medical records or tests of his mental acuity, which I think they really should do for an 80 year old man in his condition. Certainly is. As the supposed leader of the free world, it's very concerning. Uh, much of this policy is directed off the cuff. Well, we'll keep an eye on that, but let's move on to a different scenario. We're looking at NATO right now, and Sweden has been looking to enter NATO. We've talked about on this program quite a bit. Well, there were some bumps in the road in that entry process, wasn't there? <laughs> well, there was. Uh, earlier this week, uh, there was a Koran burning in Stockholm. Big, big event. Two people were there. The gentleman who actually burned the Koran and another one taking a video of him. Uh, from what I've been able to understand, uh, around 100, maybe 200 people watch this on social media. But, but the backlash across the Muslim world was just astonishing. Morocco and other Muslim countries are demanding to, they're recalling their ambassador, demanding an apology from the government of Sweden, which obviously had nothing to do with this. Uh, Saudi Arabia, even Syria, Egypt, the UAE, they've all denounced uh, this non-event as a huge incident. But the big deal here, Rick, is Turkey. Why? Because Turkey has been the one that's holding up Sweden's uh, joining NATO. Uh, remember, NATO is a consensus organization, so all of the member nations must agree to bring in a new country. They agreed to Finland, uh, now bringing NATO up to, I think it's 31. But Turkey has put a hold on Sweden's uh, joining NATO, and this incident they use as a yet another excuse to prevent Sweden from joining NATO. Well, that's a situation that we will continue to update you on in the future. But Ken, as I said earlier, there are so many things going on in the geopolitical world today. Thank you for what you do. For those who are listening to the program right now, if you'd like to find out more about Ken or sign up for his newsletter, which I think is great. And it's something that gives you great information on a weekly basis. You can go to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Rick. God bless. Great job as always. That's Ken Timmerman. A lot to unpack in that segment. 
You know, again, we do this program so that we as Christians will be prepared, living a pure, productive, holy life in an unholy world. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Kramer with Mission Network News. The Taliban's supreme leader made his intentions clear last night on a special Eid al-Adha radio message. He said, and we're quoting here, Today we can implement the true orders of Islam. We will not accept any obstacle or global pressure. So far, Afghanistan's de facto government only stays true to claims like these. In June of 2022, the Taliban said it protects the religious and civil rights of all minorities in Afghanistan. And yet, that hasn't been the case. Stand by Afghan Christians through Voice of the Martyrs USA. Meanwhile, have you ever wondered what it's like to be a Christian under the Communist Party in China? Well, it's complicated. For example, some believers have reported concerns that the Chinese government might alter Bibles in order to promote pro-Chinese or pro-Communist agendas. However, Bibles for China says that's not the case for their team's Bibles. As the church in China navigates current and future restrictions, pray they'll rely on Jesus to guide them in wisdom and truth. Mission Network News, the service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East News Update, where we look at news coming out of the Middle East, but especially out of Israel. And to do that, we have author and journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. Blessed to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, there's a lot to get at, especially around Israel, but a late-breaking story near the end of the week is the fact, and it comes... (laughs) Almost like it's out of a spy novel, the Israeli Mossad has abducted a terror leader inside Iran to thwart an attack in Cyprus. Can you tell us what you know about that? Yes, the story first broke on Sunday, Rick, in the Jerusalem Post and a couple other places that this terror cell had been thwarted on the island of Cyprus, which, by the way, is one of the most popular summer tourist destinations for Israeli tourists. Uh, It used to be Turkey, and after the troubles with Turkey, it switched to Cyprus and Greece increasingly. And uh, then Thursday evening, they released, the Mossad released a statement confirming that and saying, we actually abducted the head of the terror cell from Iran itself. Well, that's pretty newsy, and brought him back to Israel, interrogated him. He admitted to the plot. He said there were eight terrorists involved uh, based in Cyprus, and uh, the Cypriot authorities arrested seven of them. One got away, 
and thwarted this terrible attack. And uh, earlier, there was an attack planned in Greece in uh, 2021 at a popular Israeli restaurant in Athens next to a, a synagogue, Jewish synagogue, and usually a lot of Israelis there. And of course, there was a plot last year in Turkey to kill Israeli tourists that was thwarted by the Mossad, again, working with Turkish authorities. But the capture in Iran itself of the head and bringing him back to Israel is quite newsy. And the Mossad sort of crowed about it, Rick, which I think was, you know, due, saying this shows that we will go anywhere at any time to protect our people around the world and stop these nefarious plots against them. So. Uh, the Israeli public, I'm sure, is quite thrilled that this planned terror attack did not take place. And by the way, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards were in charge of it. So it was an official thing coming from the top echelons of the government. And they had stores of uh, weapons and other things already pre-based in Cyprus. What an interesting story and an, an example of how Israel will do whatever it takes to provide security and to remain in existence. Well, uh, we move from the spy intrigue that we have there to more of a political intrigue. And this week we have learned that Prime Minister Netanyahu is set to visit China, which is interesting from a variety of angles, isn't it? It is. He announced it himself that he uh, has been invited. Well, that happened some months ago, the invitation, but that he does intend to go to Beijing and meet with the Chinese leaders. And that was met by a chorus of calls from different security agencies and politicians for him not to do so because it would further harm political relations between Israel and Washington. And as I pointed out a couple weeks ago, Military ties remain extremely strong between the two countries, but the political ties less so. And we had uh, President Biden this week at a fundraiser at a, uh, a female Jewish Democratic fundraiser's home in Maryland. He said, quote, we have great concern about this situation in Israel. And then he went on to say he supports Israel strongly. He's been to Auschwitz and other things, and the bonds are strong. But the great concern, probably referring to the Netanyahu government, the uh, countermeasures that were taken by Israeli settlers in Judea and Samaria, Samaria in particular, after the terror attack last week there, the sacking of some Arab villages, basically, and some homes. And by the way, that was the subject on Tuesday this week of a meeting by Netanyahu and his top military leaders with Ben Gavir, the minister of police, in which he argued that the government needs to take a stronger stand against the Palestinians. And uh, they said, look, we're harming Netanyahu, reportedly said, this is harming relations with our most important ally on earth, the United States. We have to recognize there's a left-wing government in the U.S. right now that doesn't back us as strongly as the previous Trump government, and we need to be careful to take measures. So they were discussing that and arguing over that. But again, it just shows that this remains a very uh, important relationship. But of course, Washington can't stop uh, Netanyahu from visiting China, and uh, Israel has ties with China, has business ties with China, and like so many of, uh, pretty much all of America's allies have relations with China to one degree or another. But it underlines, again, the fact that Biden has not invited Netanyahu to visit the White House, although President Herzog will be in Washington next month speaking before Congress and will go to the White House. But Netanyahu himself, uh, the last of America's close allies, not to have been invited to Washington. 
Well, that fact in and of itself certainly makes a statement, but let's continue on. You alluded to the fact that the judicial overhaul has been changed just a little bit. They're restarting the process, but they have changed it to make it maybe more amenable. Can you tell us what's going on there? Well, yes, this came out in an interview that Prime Minister Netanyahu did with the Wall Street Journal published on Thursday, Rick, in which he said he would drop the most controversial part of the judicial reform plan, and that was to give the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, the ability to overturn any Supreme Court ruling. A majority of Knesset members voting for that would cancel whatever the Supreme Court had ruled. Well, that was extremely opposed by the left wing in Israel. And by the way, there were more demonstrations Thursday night in Tel Aviv. They blocked the highway once again and other things going on with that. But he basically said, this is so we can get it through the parliament. This is so our allies around the world uh, who are most concerned about that aspect. And it, again, would be as if a majority of the Senate 61 votes could cancel any Supreme Court ruling in the United States. It is controversial, and he's dropping that. He also tweaked the part that gave the government the power or a large part of the power to appoint judges. So he, he uh, minimized that. So it should be more acceptable to the opponents of reform, but they will remain opposed to it. And of course, Ehud Barak leading the former prime minister, leading the pack, saying this is, you know, the end of democracy in Israel and these sorts of uh, statements. So um, Netanyahu's just trying to keep the ship floating and keep the trouble down as much as he can in light of everything else going on, Iran in particular, which, by the way, they said this week is building two new bases south of Damascus, Rick, and Hezbollah building a third military bases closer to Israel. So that's obviously the main concern still that Netanyahu has. He certainly does. And the political sets the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. We talk about that all the time. And so many political events taking place, you help us navigate through them and explain to us what's happening. Well, let's finish off this segment. I'd like to talk to you about a paper that was put out by an archaeologist. And again, we don't need confirmation of the Bible being accurate, but this seems to be just that. Can you tell us about this? Well, basically, Rick, there's two camps in the Israeli archaeological community. There's the camp that believes probably a good part of the Bible is accurate, and what it said about King David in ancient history is fairly accurate. And then there's another camp called the Minimalists that say, no, no, you know, that's exaggerations, and there was no great kingdom of David or Solomon and all of these things, you know, the Queen of Sheba didn't come and all these sorts of things. Well, the Minimalists uh, were thwarted in 93, 1993. I reported the story at the time when up in the north in Tel Dan, an inscription was found that uh, said the House of David, mentioned the House of David. That was the first concrete find. And since then, Rick, they've uncovered all sorts of things confirming that King David existed, that he was a powerful king. But Yosef Garfinkel, this Hebrew U professor that published the paper you mentioned, he's of the opinion and has been, I've interviewed him uh, for a long time, that we can trust the Bible for the most part. And he points out this is 3,000 years ago when David reigned, so it's not yesterday. And of course, it takes time and it's hard to uncover things. But he noted that there were five the well-known five cities around Jerusalem that were uh, down in Gaza, south of Jerusalem, uh, east of Jerusalem, that were part, it says in the Bible, of King David's empire. 
Uh, he says all the archaeological evidence the past few years shows that they were reinforced cities, concrete walls. They had uh, Canaanite writing papyri in them showing communications existed and many other evidences that he cites confirming that these were important, powerful towns that were sort of the guardians around Jerusalem that wasn't just uh, a small little town, as the minimalists say, with uh, King David just being uh, the shepherd king of a few thousand people, but indeed being the leader of a powerful empire. So the paper was published in an official uh, gazette uh, that Hebrew U has and uh, disputed immediately by the minimalists who were in Tel Aviv mainly and other universities. And this argument's been going on forever. But the facts on the ground, if we've said so many times, you turn a stone, you find some more evidence of uh, these things. And the skeptics are uh, on shakier and shakier ground, I would say, as the days go on. And the truth of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible is increasingly confirmed. And uh, I think you and I are glad for that. We certainly are. David, as always, thank you for being our guide into all the things that are taking place in the Middle East, and especially Israel. We look forward to talking to you again soon. As always, Rick, you're welcome, and God bless. We've got to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to stay in Israel with Winky Madaf, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I like what you said about the Bible not needing to have your understanding of God's Word confirmed through history, but it is interesting when you do look at things and how archaeology does confirm what the Word of God says. That's right, Jimmy. And we used to work at an organization with a guy named Jack Wurtzen who said the greatest evidence for Christianity is a changed life. And I certainly believe that. But you look at archaeology and modern day archaeology, and when it confirms scripture, it certainly is a good thing, isn't it? It sure is. Well, we've got Winky Madad standing by. And after Winky, Bob McGinnis will be in here. Colonel Bob McGinnis will be talking, and, and we'll get an update on the Russian situation, China, what China is doing, what we're looking at as we are China watchers, and then some very interesting analysis of where we are and what's taking place in America. Uh, Colonel Bob McGinnis, uh, and Rick, you and I have both read his books. He's got some great stuff, and we'll cover that today. But let's go back to Israel and talk to Israel Madad, affectionately known, and we call him as Winky. 
Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Winky Madad with us. He is our good friend. He's a frequent contributor to the program, former mayor of Shiloh, and someone that lives in the West Bank and understands history and politics. Winky, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on once again. Well, Winky, this is a particularly interesting week for you, as you are a resident of the area that we would call Judea and Samaria, but maybe the mainstream media might know it as the West Bank. And this has been a topic in all the news stories all across the world as we look at people that are troubled by Israel's quote-unquote settlement expansion plans. Could you give us an overview of this story? Well, ever since the 1930s, it has been an accepted sort of basis and fundamental procedure of Zionism that in addition to simply resettling the land of Israel, if there is an Arab attack, if the Arabs, for example, in 1936 had a general strike against the port of Jaffa, well, the Jews at that time, I can't call them Israelis, but the Jews at that time opened up a port in Tel Aviv. If the British declared that certain areas could not be settled or kibbutzim and moshevim could not be built upon them, we had the famous, from 1937 on, we had the famous tower and stockade building. Uh, if they said we couldn't come in uh, immigration, so we got boats and came in uh, any which way we could. And it's called the Zionist response. There was at a certain period of time, if we're pressured on a certain Zionist fundamental right, then we would do it any way we can without harming people, but to go under, around, and above the law. The law, of course, we believe is not correct and is not just. And in this case, the uh, response to Arab terror has always been build another house, build another road, build another school. And so plans that were waiting in, in, in the background all of a sudden were pushed up to the fore in response to the terror attack at Ailee where four young people Three young people and one old person, older I should say, uh, were killed in the terror attack. And uh, now we have a whole bunch of quickly authorized uh, community construction plans in the forefront. Well, we look at this situation and many people say that this is a result of a far-right government, a government that is sympathetic to settlers. It certainly seems, and if we if we look at the history over the last however many years, the peace process that has been taking place with the Palestinians does not seem to be bringing any results, and that's probably an understatement if I'm saying that. So it looks like there are many people calling, and I have a story, Winky, from the World Zionist Organization saying that ministers should push Jordan Valley annexation right now. If you're not going to have peace, at least we can have the land. Is that a sentiment that makes sense? Well, uh, the thought, of course, is is, is correct, and, and the idea behind that, of course, is that almost 90% of all governments, left and right, across the political divide, have always said that there'll be some sort of Israeli presence in the lower Jordan Valley, as you know, and perhaps those who've gone on your trips, right? It's all the way down in the lower Jordan Valley. We're talking about a strip between 10 to 15 to 20 kilometers in certain places because the Jordan River is a strategic military necessity for Israel. We cannot, first of all, allow the Palestinian Authority to be in control of that area because they're just bringing all the arms in from Syria, Iraq, and then Iran, even, of that nature. And, of course, it's the most natural 
barrier for uh, troops and or armored vehicles coming across. So no one's going to give up the Jordan Valley. That's been on the, on the agenda for, for, for decades. So why not do it now? Is You're all correct. Very interesting, Winky. Well, you look at the American response to this. America is saying they are deeply troubled. There is a well-documented animosity between President Biden. He has still not invited uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to the White House. It looks like President Herzog has been invited to address Congress, but still no Netanyahu invitation. And now maybe they're upset that he might be going to China. So this animosity is very evident, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, not only that, it, it, it's also kind of silly in a certain sense. I mean, I think Mr. Biden uh, has received many people who are not 100% pro-American at the White House. And here you have uh, an Israeli prime minister who's 110% pro-American, so much so that I'm, I, I would give a good guess he probably elected president of the United States if he ran. But uh, on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, you have a Secretary of State by the name of Anthony Blinken. Uh, just by the way, uh, Rick, uh, Anthony Blinken was a schoolmate of a certain person by the name of Robert Malley, whose name you might have seen uh, over the last day or so, who's now been suspended from his job as the main negotiator on the Iran issue. And the FBI, I understand, reading the websites here, is becoming involved. But Beyond that, that's, we don't know anything for sure, but Mr. Blinken told the Council on Foreign Relations that Israel has a fire in its backyard, and therefore he's being very strict with Israel and telling them to pull things together. Uh, so if we're talking about global international relations here, I'm waiting for his phone call to the uh, president of France, uh, uh, Mr. Macron, who seems to have a very big fire in the backyards of Paris, all over the place this past week. Will he do that? Of course he will not, because he, he can't push France around. He can try to push his, or he thinks he can try to push his around. So all this diplomatic playing around it doesn't lend any sort of real credence to the ability of America, or should I say not America, this Biden administration, for being fair for Israel. One other avenue I'd like to look at when it comes to this quote-unquote settlement expansion is that many people feel like this will put an end to the Abraham Accords. Can you talk about the two and how they equate with each other? Well, the idea is that people presume that the Abraham Accords were done with either a promise or an indication that Israel would stop settlement activity, as it's called, what I call resettling Jews on their historic national home, and accept a two-state solution. I'm not quite sure that's true, but the fact of the matter is they were done even though Israel at that time was continuing to resettle Jews on the land of Israel and was adamant against a two-state solution, seeking some other alternative. Uh, and as we go along, and I, I think I've said this on the program several times, I am, I am convinced that the advantages of the Arab states who have uh, engaged in the Abraham Accords, specifically economically, industrially, uh, medically, scientifically, etc., are going to outweigh any sort of support they presumably have for the Palestinian cause. 
And I think that the United States and Israel should move forward on them and stop playing around trying to use them as a, a weight or a Damascus sword over the head of Israel. Very interesting analysis, and I agree with you there. Well, I have two more subjects that I'd like to get your quick comment on. We often talk to you, and I know you're a proponent of a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, a respectful Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, not storming the Alaska Mosque, as we often see in the news. But uh, we have seen uh, this past week, I'd love to get your comment on the fact that many members of Hamas, a political organization, a group that is a terrorist organization, were arrested for bringing Hamas flags onto the Temple Mount. Can you talk about that? Uh, I can, and it just wasn't flags or even pennants. It was a huge, I don't know how they get them into the Temple Mount. I mean, the police managed to find all sorts of Jews going up there, but they can't find a banner. It looked to me about 10 feet by 20 feet, which they hung over the arches. For those who've been on your tours and know, there are several arches on the uh, platform of the Dome of the Rock, and the police needed to use ladders afterwards to get up and pull them down. Of course, there was clips and TikToks, and I don't know what they have today, all sorts of videos, and they were able to identify people and arrest them. But it goes to the point that we've been making, I think, or I've been trying to make with you and your father over the years, right, is that either this is a holy site, and therefore religious respectability, as you say, should be the ground rules, or it's a political site, or it's a playground, or it's a soccer pitch, or, or whatever else is going on there. And if so, it belongs to everybody. I, I can understand that the Catholic Church would not want a bunch of Jews coming into the Basilica of uh, St. Peter or something like that and playing around. Okay? We're not going to do that, but I'm just using an example. Or any other synagogue, church, uh, uh, mosque, etc., like that. But when you have a site that everybody knows has been shared over the years in terms of history, First a temple, then a mosque, uh, or then a pagan temple, and then a church, and then a mosque, etc. like that. Find ways of sharing it. It's not yours exclusively. And these penance, if you want to turn it into political arena, then everybody should have a chance at a go. Winky, we believe that that is the site of the Garden of Eden, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now maybe you can see why the Muslims want the Temple Mount as their land. However, Bible prophecy says that the Garden of Eden belongs to the Jews, which will be the case in the last days. Isaiah 51, 3, Ezekiel 36, 35, and Joel chapter 2, verse 3. Well, Wiki, thank you for joining with us this week. Thank you very much, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Well, Rick, we're going to transition over to what's happening geopolitically again with Colonel Bob McGinnis. I'm looking forward. Colonel McGinnis, welcome back to the program. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis with us. He's a frequent guest of the program. He's a retired U.S. Army officer and the author of nine books. The most recent is Kings of the East, China's Plan to Eliminate America and Impose a Communist World Order. Colonel McGinnis, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick. Well, Colonel McGinnis, we're going to talk to you about China in just a second. But before we do that, I'd like to talk to you about this extraordinary series of events, what looks like an attempted Russian coup last week. Can you tell us what you know about that? Well, I, I wouldn't call it a coup. I'd call it a mutiny of sorts uh, by the Wagner group. Pergosin, who, of course, is the leader 
of Wagner, a mercenary group established in 2014 that helped the Russians take over Crimea at the time following the Olympics there in Sochi. They have been used by Vladimir Putin, the president of the Russian Federation, all over the world to basically leverage influence in places like Africa, Middle East, like Syria, uh, Iran, uh, certainly in Latin America, and more recently in the Caribbean. And so the Wagner Group has been fighting effectively in Ukraine for the Russians. They have been probably the most ferocious fighters that the Russians have. And here recently, there's the allegation from Pergozin that uh, Russian aircraft bombed one of the Wagner camps and killed hundreds of Wagner fighters, uh, which really means it's it's a dispute between the Russian military and Putin and the Wagner people. Now, having said that, uh, what appears to have happened is that Pergozin decided he wanted to take into and to capture uh, Stoivo, who was the defense minister, and uh, Gerasimo, who, of course, is the general, the army chief of staff, uh, who were about to visit last week Rostov, which is the military headquarters there uh, in southern Russia. And so he went in there and with his fighters, took over the city unopposed for the most part, and it didn't happen. Those two didn't show up. So uh, he put hundreds of vehicles on the road heading to Moscow with the intent of arresting them. Uh, and, of course, the spin in the media has been that it was going to be a coup. They were going to take over the Kremlin and, and take over the government. Uh, that doesn't appear to, you know, in hindsight, to be the case. It really was uh, the, the whole conflict between the, the senior Kremlin military officials and uh, the Wagner group. So this, however, has weakened Putin. Uh, it has also stirred uh, resistance across Russia. Uh, you know, they're already flailing somewhat economically because of the sanctions. Uh, they have, uh, they've had to mobilize people and hundreds of thousands have left Russia. Uh, and so this puts arguably Putin in a, in a worse situation. Uh, now they're trying to take over, of course, the control of Wagner's, you know, 30,000 troops all over the world doing the bidding of Putin. Um, so the second and third order effects are only now beginning to be realized. It's an interesting development, uh, but I don't think uh, Putin is going to fall immediately. I do believe inevitably uh, this is just a crack and it will uh, sever even worse in, in the coming months. Very interesting. Well, it was a, an extraordinary series of events. We didn't know what's going on, but I see what you're saying now as you look at this situation. Uh, it, it just shows a sign of weakness, but it wasn't necessarily a direct confrontation with Putin, was it? Not really. Uh, I, I think the fact that uh, Lushenko in Belarus quickly negotiated with Putin to, to bring Pogosin over to in exile into Belarus uh, is evidence of the fact that uh, it was a quick move by Putin to bolster his military staff. But at the same time, there, there will be a, a shakeup in the military within the Russian forces, uh, and it will have an immediate impact, I think, in the offensive, counteroffensive that's being launched by the Ukrainians in the east Donbass area of Crimea by the Russians. So, uh, there, there are more shoes to be dropped here in the, the coming months, 
uh, it's rather interested in geopolitically. Uh, it will certainly have an influence over what NATO, which meets in a week, and they'll kind of uh, decide whether or not they're going to strengthen forces. What, what's interesting, and this is this is important, is that Zelensky has been talking to Biden about uh, not only S-16s, which evidently in time uh, the Ukrainians will have, but also ATACMs, which have a reach, a missile of 190 miles that they could reach inside Russia and destroy logistic bases and the like. So the transition in this war, uh, taking it into Mother Russia, uh, is a development that NATO has to be very cautious about uh, because it could well expand. Now, uh, there are geopolitical implications also for China, uh, given that Xi and Putin have been very cozy of late, uh, something I predicted years ago that has come to full fruition at this point, uh, that, of course, uh, Russia is a surrogate, a proxy of sorts for President Xi of China, and that has uh, broad geopolitical implications across the world. We certainly bring up a lot of points there, and I'd like to explore a few of them. Let's start with the Ukrainian crisis. And with this uh, thing that we talk about, uh, the fog of war, and we look at it and it's hard to tell who's winning, and we, we see both sides making advances at times, but it does seem like Ukraine has the upper hand right now. But I'd like to talk about Ukraine a little bit. Uh, President Zelensky has said that he is suspending elections in Ukraine, which is very interesting. He says he will not allow elections during a wartime, which is anti-democratic at the least. Uh, and then you look at so much Western support, especially the United States putting so much money and materials into Ukraine. How should we look at the situation in Ukraine right now? Well, Ukraine is a corrupt government. Uh, and it's just, you know, I've, I've spent time in Ukraine. I've spent time in Russia. Um, I follow the Ukrainian developments very closely. Uh, Zelensky's move to set aside elections, as you indicate, is anti-democratic. And yet uh, the Biden administration is, you know, can't be found criticizing what's going on in Ukraine. And I find that inconsistent. Uh, I do believe that if Donald Trump had remained in office, that, that war never would have happened, that Putin and Xi and other you know, tyrants around the world have respected Mr. Trump because they can, couldn't predict his behavior. And as a result, I don't think they would have launched operations into Ukraine. Um, and I've been saying that, you know, since just before Putin's attack in there in February 2021. So, you know, it's unfortunate what's going on in Ukraine. Ukraine, uh, I don't think, has the might uh, to defeat the Russian Federation toe-to-toe. Uh, now, whether or not they can extract Russia under the, the current situation, as long as they are willing to spend the blood and we provide the treasure in terms of sophisticated weapons, I do believe that uh, you know, this could be a protracted war and it could continue for certainly more than a, a year or, or years. You know, long ago, we should have thought some sort of peaceful resolution, but we failed. Well, it certainly is a complicated situation and not as black and white as some may have you to believe. Well, let's move on. You talked about China a little bit, and that was a very interesting observation looking 
at Russia as a proxy for China. But I'd like to talk about China, and that's your book, Kings of the East, China's Plan to Eliminate America and Impose a Communist World Order. Well, since we've talked to you the last time, it seems to be every week there's a story that comes out, China's growing their nuclear weapons program, maybe putting a base in Cuba, growing their navy, their spy balloons. Can you tell me, what do you see this progression coming to? Well, China has every ambition to take over the world. And we've seen that uh, in spades, especially in the last couple of years. You mentioned the spy balloon. You've mentioned the spy station in Cuba, which has been there, quite frankly, for years. Uh, It's just beginning to get attention. Uh, They have, using Belt and Road Initiative, uh, established a presence in 140 nations. They've taken over much of Latin America, especially from Panama, and to the south, you know, they're, they're very cozy with Brazil, you know, certainly uh, Chile, Peru, Ecuador, Argentina, you name it. Uh, the same thing with Africa. They're, you can't go to China without seeing, or to Africa without seeing Chinese uh, personnel, whether soldiers or civilians working in infrastructure issues. So the Chinese are ever present across the world. They're trying to, what they can't dominate one way or another, they'll buy, and they're very effective at that. Meanwhile, of course, we've been incredibly naive. You know, long ago, in my book, Alliance of Evil, in 2018, I said we were in a new Cold War, uh, and our adversaries were China and Russia. A lot of people didn't believe it, but all the 16 markers I indicated in that book are present today. And, of Mm. course, Kings of the East, talking about world dominance, you you just have to read what President Xi has said time and again over the years and more recently uh, at the Congress, uh, that he has every intention of making uh, the world certainly amenable to Chinese interest. Uh, And, of course, they are foisting an economic worldwide organization called BRICS that includes the Russians and Brazilians and others uh, to counter the globalists that we find that we're aligned with in in Europe and Japan and Australia and the like. And so you really find a bifurcated world, a divided world uh, going forward, and one that not only will be economically adversarial, but also uh, geopolitically and kinetically, you know, arms had the serial. And my new book coming out in a month, uh, Divided We Stand, addresses that in spades. Well, Colonel McGinnis, it certainly is interesting, all of these things taking place. And many of your books, I remember looking and reading those books many, many years ago now, and all of a sudden, everything that you have talked about is the the main stories in the news today. Well, one other question, and this is Maybe uh, just because we don't get you on the program very often, I wanted to talk to you about this situation where we are looking to indict President Trump for classified documents. I know you've dealt with a lot of classified documents. I'd just love to get your opinion on this situation. Yeah, certainly the dual justice system, I think, that is becoming evident uh, out of our Justice Department. Uh, You know, the handling of classified documents is, is important. Everybody knows that the president can declassify. The question is whether or not Mr. Trump you know, declassified all the documents that were taken down to Mar-a-Lago uh, after he left office. 
and therefore, and the archivist uh, wasn't given access or was and so forth. Uh, those are, are somewhat in dispute, and of course, that will be you know, addressed, unfortunately, in the courts, whereas previously, of course, you have the, the likes of Biden and uh, Obama and Bush and other presidents that have always taken documents home with them, allegedly, you know, to write their uh, memoirs or the like. Uh, it just seems to me that this dual justice system does not serve the national interest that Mr. Trump is being made an example of uh, because he's a political threat to the Biden administration. And, of course, they're just about as crooked as you can find, uh, corrupted, whether it's by you know, the dirty money that Hunter Biden takes from the Romanians, the Chinese, the Russians, and others. And the question is whether or not Mr. Biden himself is the big guy that's named consistently in even IRS, you know, leakers or whistleblowers testimony and the like. So these are very, very distressing uh, situations that are emerging in our country. It's clear that corruption uh, has tainted the Oval Office and our Congress, and as a result, has put our country in a much weaker position vis-a-vis -vis the, the likes of uh, Beijing, Moscow, and elsewhere in the world. Well, that term, a dual justice system, is very scary, and it's kind of the weaponization of the, the legal system, which we need to be very careful of. Well, we appreciate all that you do to keep our listeners informed. Your books, and you have many of them, and you're writing books now. You just said you have an upcoming book. They are very insightful. How could our listeners find your books if they wanted to read them? Well, they're available, of course, in Amazon uh, and most uh, Barnes and Nobles, the, the Walmarts, the world and others. It's uh, widely distributed across the world. So it's not hard to find. Just, you know, go into your, your web browser and type my last name, M-A-G-I-N-N-I-S, and my books are available at many venues. Well, thank you so much for being on the program. As always, it's been very insightful. We appreciate what you do to keep our listeners informed, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, thanks a lot, Rick. Have a good day. Well, we're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll have the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung as we continue on with God's Plan Through the Ages, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Wow, a power-packed hour that we just went through, Rick. And, uh, you know, on our legacy series, which we're getting ready to continue this week, God's plan through the ages. But on our legacy series, uh, you know, I like it because people even send us questions about what they heard. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, say, where can they go get more information and listen to these audio series? Jimmy, if you go to our website at prophecytoday.com, you can look. Uh, we've got information about these audio series. We have the program. You can listen to the program up there and go to our devotionals. And then also you can join our website, come find out more about us, put a request in, ask us a question. We always respond to it. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that's prophecytoday.com. And if you want to listen to the program again, sometimes if you're listening on the radio, you don't get to, well, what did he just say? You can go to our website because it's archived there and listen to the program again, start it, stop it, whatever you want to do. Well, as we continue our legacy series this week, today we're going to continue our study of God's plan through the ages. 
You know, we've been tracing the Jewish people since they came into existence at the time of Abraham. Today we come to the time of the entrance into the promised land under Joshua. From the beginning of the Jewish people for thousands of years ago, God has had a plan for them and he still does. We'll see how God's plan is going to work in our study today. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. And so he brings them into the land. They come around after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That's the book of Numbers. Study the book of Numbers. You'll see the wanderings in the wilderness. And when you come up to, and by the way, you know where the wilderness is? That's from Jerusalem south to Elot. We take tours to Israel. We go through that Negev desert. That's where they wandered for the 40 years. They were so close. You could see the promised land. But because of unbelief. God is chastising them. He didn't do away with them. He didn't let them all die in the wilderness. They come around to Shatim, which is just across the Jordan River there in Jordan. They prepare for three days. Joshua then is the leader. They take the Ark of the Covenant. The priest walk into the Jordan River. The Jordan River, it was the springtime, remember? Passover. They're going to have the Passover when they get over to Gilgal, crossing over the Jordan River. The waters were flooded over the banks, not like it is today, flooded over the banks, all the way from Adam to Jericho, the Dead Sea. That was a massive river. And as those priests stepped in the water, it split open. Dry ground they walked across, went over to Gilgal, 137,000 of them. Oh, you know what the first thing they did when they got there was? Oh, the men were really excited. They had a circumcision service because during those wanders in the wilderness, no circumcision, these men had now come into the promised land. 40,000 of them are going to be used to conquer. Not only all of them, just one third of the team is going to be used to conquer Jericho. This is the book of Joshua. We're seeing God as he's promised to take care of these people. Judges is a period of time when they have a number of judges who rule the land, but everybody's doing what they think is right in their own eyes. God then, he relents to their request for a king. The book of 1 Samuel is the first king. That's Saul. 2 Samuel, the second king. That's David. David comes to be a king over his tribe, Judah, in a place called Hebron, setting the stage, the second most sacred piece of real estate in all of Judaism. It's the place where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. But that's where Caleb got a piece of real estate. Caleb said, I want that mountain where the grapes of Eskel grow. You know what the emblem for the Israeli tourism is, don't you? It's two guys carrying a stalk of grapes on a pole between them. And that Graves out there are unbelievable. But he brings them in. And that's where David comes to power as the king of Judah. And then all 12 tribes want him to be king. So he then goes to a place called Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And there it's a Jebusite stronghold. He captured the city. He makes it the capital of the Jewish people. That was 3,000 years ago. You see, if you're going to understand today, you've got to understand yesterday. That's 2 Samuel chapter 5. He's the king of all of Israel. Chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Garim into Jerusalem, makes it the spiritual capital, 2 Samuel chapter 6. That's 3,000 years ago. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives David the, the Davidic covenant. I'm going to have a temple on the Temple Mount. Your son will build it, and one of your sons will rule him from that location, and I'm going to settle Jewish people down in Jerusalem. This is part of their whole existence. The third king is Solomon. 
That's 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 11, what happens? King Solomon, as had Saul and David, the two kings before him, served for 40 years. But because of his sin, because of a thousand wives and concubines, because of following after their gods, at the end of his reign of 40 years, he divides the kingdom. Ten tribes go into the north. They're called Israel. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stay in the south. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, takes over the two tribes in the south. He's the king of Judah. Jeroboam, who was an antagonist to King Solomon, he takes the ten tribes and goes in the north. That's 1 Kings 11. You continue to study the kings in the, the tribes in the north under Jeroboam. In 722 BC, 2 Samuel chapter 17, uh, we have the Assyrian leader who comes in and he takes the Jews out, those 10 tribes, into the Assyrian captivity. About 100 years, just a bit more than 100 years later. You have Nebuchadnezzar, who goes over and defeats the Assyrians. He captures Egypt. On his way back from Egypt, he takes a couple of young Jewish boys, four of them. Daniel, Ananias, Hazariah, and Mishael, better known maybe to you by Zadrach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Go to chapter 36 of 2 Samuel. Second uh, uh, Chronicles, excuse me. Second Chronicles, chapter 36. Let me show you when Nebuchadnezzar comes in on his third wave, he's coming in to take the Jewish people into the Babylonian captivity. See, he established human government. Chapter 9, verse 6, book of Genesis. He's now going to use human government. He used the Assyrian leader. And now he's going to use the Babylonian leader. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 7, chapter 36, 2 Chronicles. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon, and he put them in his temple at Babylon. Look at verse 18. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of his princes, and all these he brought into Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and they break down the wall of Jerusalem, and they burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and they destroyed all the godly vessels thereof. By the way, you've got to realize that this is key for what's going to happen over in chapter 16 of Revelation, verses 17 and following. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple, devastates the city, brings the Jews, the remaining third Jews still alive, into the Babylonian captivity, brings all the utensils, all the furniture, except for the Ark of the Covenant, because it had been hidden underneath the spot where the temple stood on the Temple Mount. That's 2 Chronicles chapter 35. And verse 3, he brings them. Why did he do this? Look at verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 25, verse 9, chapter 29, verse 10, makes the following statement. Because you Jews did not obey the command I gave in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, this land is my land, I want you to rest the land, give it a Sabbath every seven years. Because you did not do that for 490 years, I'm taking you out of the land for 70 years. Seven into 490 is 70 years. That was the quiet time that old Daniel was having in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2 when he said, when I was reading from Jeremiah in my quiet time, I realized the time of the desolation of Jerusalem was over. If you don't understand the history, 
history, a a biblical philosophy of history. And what's happening with the Jewish people? You're not going to understand God's plan for the future and what he means for us to be doing in the day we're still alive. And so they're taken into Babylonian captivity. Go across the page from 2 Chronicles chapter 36. God raises up a Persian king named Cyrus. 150 years before the fact, in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, God gave Isaiah the prophet a message. I'm going to raise up a man. He's going to let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. In fact, I'm going to name the man. His name is Cyrus. That's pretty good, isn't it? 150 years before the fact, the event, and the man who's going to allow it to happen. Look here, verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Chapter 2, he allows Zerubbabel to take 50,000 Jews back into Jerusalem from all the 12 tribes of Israel. Hello? All 12 tribes, no lost 10 tribes in the world. Read the scripture. It's key to understand history so you can understand the future. All 12 tribes are in the land. All of Israel goes back. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 in the book of Ezra. They get back into the land. Uh, They fall to the Babylonian Empire, 539 B.C. It takes them 25 years. It's about 515 B.C. now. And finally, after the ministry, look here in chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the prophet, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem. They told him to build the temple. God raises up two prophets. One of them is a priest. That's Zechariah. The other is a crusty old man. That's Haggai. The crusty old man said, get in there and build that temple. Zechariah, the suave priest, says, please, come along. Let's build the temple. That's our priority. By the way, this brings the prophets into our minds. There's 17 prophets in the Old Testament that have written books. Prophets throughout the Old Testament. These 17 prophesy at a certain time in history. You see here Zechariah and Haggai and one other Malachi. The last three, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they prophesy after the Babylonian captivity. Now if you want to know how to read and understand what you're reading. So they are the prophets after the Babylonian captivity, after the Jews have returned to the land. There are two prophets that prophesy during the Babylonian captivity. That would be Daniel and Ezekiel. All the rest of the prophets prophesy before the Babylonian captivity. Now that's key. If you're a student of prophecy, a student of the Word of God, you've got to have that in mind. Who are the three afterwards? Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. The two during Daniel and Ezekiel. All the other prophets before the Babylonian captivity. And so we see the prophets now coming into existence. There's so much more. Let me just take you over to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. And he makes a statement. He said, before the great dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah is going to show up. And then, that's the last word of God for 400 years. But that bridge is spanned by Elijah. John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, comes on the scene. He is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah, the Jewish people. Jesus Christ comes, as promised throughout the entire Old Testament, to set up a kingdom. For who? The Jewish people. 
The kingdom only promised to the Jewish people. Never promised to Christians. Only promised to the Jewish people. It could not come into existence, that great and dreadful day of the Lord, until Elijah shows up. John the Baptist goes out as described in the text looking like Elijah. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, he's the greatest man born of women. And he could have fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi 4, 5 and be Elijah. But the Jews rejected him. They rejected me. And so thus, that prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. Indeed, the prophecy that is found in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, that Elijah must come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, is yet to be fulfilled. Elijah will be one of the two witnesses foretold in Revelation chapter 11 verse 3 and following. But let me quickly remind you that before all of these prophecies are fulfilled, the rapture happens when Jesus shouts for each of us who are Christians to join him in the heavens. By the way, that rapture could happen at any moment, so keep looking up. Next week, we'll finish our journey through history with the Jewish people. Please join us for this study. Some very important truths in our Legacy series. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The Taliban's supreme leader made his intentions clear last night on a special Eid al-Adha radio message. He said, and we're quoting here, Today we can implement the true orders of Islam. We will not accept any obstacle or global pressure. So far, Afghanistan's de facto government only stays true to claims like these. In June of 2022, the Taliban said it protects the religious and civil rights of all minorities in Afghanistan. And yet, that hasn't been the case. Stand by Afghan Christians through Voice of the Martyrs USA. Meanwhile, have you ever wondered what it's like to be a Christian under the Communist Party in China? Well, it's complicated. For example, some believers have reported concerns that the Chinese government might alter Bibles in order to promote pro-Chinese or pro-Communist agendas. However, Bibles for China says that's not the case for their team's Bibles, as the church in China navigates current and future restrictions, pray they'll rely on Jesus to guide them in wisdom and truth. Mission Network News, the service of One Way Ministries, on Ruth Kramer. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. 
Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, for the last hour and a half, that's what we've been doing. We've been examining world leaders making decisions. And remember, I started out the program by reading Revelation 17 and 17. And as we look at these, we do see that God is using world leaders now to accomplish his will, not only today, but in the future, he's going to use the same process. That's right, Jimmy. And one of the things we say on this program often is that the political sets the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And so we're looking at the political and we're looking at political leaders and the things that are taking place. One of the reasons why we focus so much on Israel and what is taking place there, because that's going to be the center of God's plan for the end times. And, you know, we talked to Dave Dolan and we talked to Winky Midad and this situation going on with the quote unquote settler expansion in the West Bank or the area that we call Judea and Samaria Jimmy, that's a, a very hot-button topic in the world right now, isn't it? It sure is. You know, and uh, having been there in the Middle East, and I started there in 1984, we have witnessed uh, all of these nations that have come against Israel. As a matter of fact, in December of 2016, the Security Council of the United Nations passed a resolution that condemns Israel for its building of settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, which you refer to correctly as Judea and Samaria. However, the resolution was nothing but a formal statement of what most nations in the world already believed about the settlements. The United Nations had passed similar resolutions against Israel as far back as 1979. The difference is, is that these resolutions did not carry the authority of the Security Council. Prior to 2016, the United States had always vetoed any Security Council resolutions against Israel. Israel and its relationship to its neighbors in the West Bank or Gaza Strip in the area of Judea and Samaria is a complicated issue. And when we look at it, look, Rick, when we look at the history of Israel, we do see that Israel didn't, I mean, they stayed within their borders. It was only when they were attacked that they defended themselves. That's right, Jimmy. Israel became a nation in 1948 when the United Nations officially recognized their existence. And as you know, their neighbors, all of their Arab neighbors immediately attacked them. And that was the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. Israel defeated the armies of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq. And after the fighting ended, the nation of Israel, like you said, stayed within those borders but 19 years later, in 1967, in the Six-Day War, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq attacked again with additional help from other Arab nations. When this conflict ended, however, Israel seized control of the West Bank and East Jerusalem, the Sinai Peninsula and Gaza, and the Golan Heights. And ever since, Israel's occupation of those territories has certainly been a matter of international debate, hasn't it? It sure has. You know, for some reason, when the situation involves Israel, the international community has always been on the side of the Palestinians and Israel's Arab neighbors. Why is this? Uh, is it latent and overt anti-Semitism? The tremendous influence of Arab nations due to their control of the oil market? Compassion for the Palestinians? I'm not really sure. It is likely a combination of those and other factors. Biblically speaking, Rick, 
Israel has every right to possess, occupy, and build its homes in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. And far more, really, when you look at the borders of the land of Israel, first mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, but there are 35 different passages that refer to the land that God has promised to the Jewish people forever. And he invokes his holy name when he establishes and he says that phrase, forever I will give you this land. And never in history has Israel occupied its borders that God has promised. So as we look at this, Rick, I hope that we are making a statement to people that listen to this program, and maybe for the first time you're listening to it, but we do take a stand with Israel. That's right, Jimmy. Regular listeners will know that prophecy today is pro-Israel for sure. We do not claim that Israel is entirely guiltless in this conflict with the Palestinians. However, whatever crimes Israel has committed are outweighed by the terrorism crimes and military attacks perpetuated against it by the Palestinians and its Arab neighbors. The failure or refusal of the mainstream media, the United Nations, to recognize this is amazing and quite frankly distressing. There is no adequate explanation for the sheer blindness of the world toward the reality of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict other than satanic deception. And I hope that folks you are following on our legacy series, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung is talking about and going through the Old Testament, tracing the steps of the Jewish people, God's bringing them into existence, God bringing them into the land, out of the land, uh, using other world leaders to discipline the Jewish people. That's the whole story of the Old Testament, the prophecies pertaining to Israel and why it's doing and why it's being punished for what it was doing, who God used to punish them. That would have been Babylon, the mighty empire of Babylon, when God took them out of the nation of Israel into captivity, brought them back in. And even today, God is still using world leaders to accomplish his will. In the future, the tribulation period, according to Daniel chapter 9, is designed to bring the Jewish people to an understanding that God is in control. And we'll talk about that as we have in past programs. Rick, as we look at this, it just helps us to understand that God's word is going to come to fruition. Bible prophecy is going to happen. Why do we use this information? Well, it's not to be people that are living crazily and, and you know, following after who the Antichrist is. It's really to understand that there is a time coming when those people that haven't accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, either through death or the rapture of the church, denying Jesus Christ in the tribulation period, will be sentenced eternally to the lake of fire forever, for eternity. And that's why we use Bible prophecy. That's why we study it. That's why we teach it, to help us to be prepared to live a pure, productive life in a very unholy world in which we live. Rick, thanks for joining with me on the program today, for doing all the hard work. And I look forward to, again, next week, just examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. My pleasure, Jimmy, and I look forward to it as well. Folks, with all that we are seeing today, certainly we are getting closer to the rapture of the church. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.